0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We are in the concluding message of a four-part series, mini-series, during the season of Advent called Be Holy, on Leviticus chapters 18, 19, and 20. We've been in a series since September on the book of Leviticus, and so the focus during Advent has been on us as a people, as the people of God, growing into holiness so that we might be ready to meet our King. In Advent, we remember that Jesus is coming back, just like he came the first time long ago, as we'll celebrate this next weekend. And we want to be ready for his return which means that we long to be holy as the people of god we've considered a general introduction to holiness and seen that holiness is about non-conformity to the world or to the cultures around us and conformity to god so if you're here and relatively new to the things of the christian faith this is a topic and theme that really is all about what we are growing into as we come into faith in jesus that we're being changed by the love of God into something new something that doesn't look like what everything else looks like in the world but is called to be separate and set apart not in a way that's prideful and, and, and judgmental but as those who are humble who have received the love of God in our lives and are now walking in that love and so uh, hear all that I'm about to say in that context that this is a response to the love of God in our lives as we seek to become like him it is holiness is about a life of of yieldedness surrender to the will of God in our lives And we've also looked for a couple of weeks at specific topics around holiness. Two weeks ago at being holy in worship, giving God exclusive fidelity that he deserves as the one and only God, and then last week being holy in sex and offering to God our sexual lives and uh, asking him to grow us in holiness in that area. And today we arrive at what is often called the Sermon on the Mount in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. And I do invite you to follow along with me in the biblical text and to the most well-known verse, I'm going to say, in the whole Old Testament, uh, which is, love your neighbor as yourself. So Leviticus 19, 18. This, um, we'll come to this verse directly in a moment. Now, last week, when we considered the topic of sex, we found ourselves in a position of tremendous tension with the culture around us. This week, it's actually quite the opposite, I would say, that we will find ourselves in territory which is deeply affirmed by many, if not most, in the culture around us on matters like love and compassion, justice, and fairness. So that's where we're headed. Chapter 19 of of Leviticus encourages us to be holy in every dimension of life. In March of 2019, my oldest daughter and I were on a trip, a private trip in the Grand Canyon. It was a father-son slash father-daughter trip, but we were the only father-daughter pairing on the trip. Uh, And we pulled off the river one night, off the Colorado River, uh, at a beach, which was where the National Canyon, for those of you who have been to the Grand Canyon, there are all kinds of side canyons that come into the main canyon. And National Canyon is one of those toward the end of the trip, and there was a beautiful wide beach, sandy beach, and we did as we always would we'd start to set up our camp which meant setting up our tents and chloe and i picked a spot right down at the end of the beach that was beautiful and other people put their tents up and we had a nice dinner and then we crawled in the tent tired to go to bed just after it got dark and then about three o'clock in the morning we were awakened by violent swirling of wind just blowing i mean it was a massive storm that had come in and the winds were blowing but what woke us up even more was all of the sand in our tent on the sandy beach, and the wind had just stirred it up to make like a dust devil, and the sand had come in every nook and cranny. It was in my hair, my beard, our sleeping bags, our clothes. And so we managed to realize we're not in any grave danger because the tent was holding, so we kind of tried to eke out a little bit more sleep. And then we woke up the next morning, and uh, we kind of stumbled out of the tent just brushing sand off and realized that everybody else in the camp had had the exact same experience, including the trip leader and his son, the man who had been a 40-year outdoor adventure outfitter and his adult son. They had set up barricades and barriers with all the extra gear around their tent, and they were just as sandy as everybody else. Uh, So uh, sand was everywhere. And I give you that as a picture of thinking about, now, switch sand to holiness and recognize that holiness touches everything, every aspect of life on this earth. It knows no boundaries, no distinctions. It is something that God calls us to in every dimension of life. And what we find in the book of Leviticus, and particularly in chapter 19, is this call to holiness in all of life consider just a quick run through the text in this introduction but this is in the dimension of family we we get a reaffirmation of the fifth commandment of honoring or revering your father and mother in the area of worship as we've already seen we looked at verse 4 in leviticus 19 a couple of weeks ago also on keeping sabbath no idols following god's instruction in relation to fellowship offerings no mediums or necromancers communication with the spirits of the dead It affects business practices, so paying wages in a timely fashion, using fair balances and weights and measures in our business dealings, proper treatment of the poor and disadvantaged. So there are laws about gleaning, about not taking advantage of people who will not know that we're taking advantage of them, caring for the refugee and the sojourner. It addresses areas of the courts of law, matters of justice, and says there should be no preferential treatment given to the poor or to the rich in this case, and one should not bear false witness. It addresses ritual practices we i mentioned last week the, the kind of oft-quoted law about not wearing clothing with two kinds of material well, likely this has to do with the fact that it, the priests were commanded to wear clothing that had two kinds of material and so the commoner in israel was not allowed to wear that clothing to keep a distinction between the ritually holy and the ritually common Uh, so that we find here in leviticus 19 and then also just covering lots of social interactions in general not stealing dealing don't deal falsely with one another don't lie don't hate your brother but love your neighbor as yourself honor the elderly and so on so this is just a quick run through to recognize that leviticus 19 does show us that holiness seeps in to every part of life and cannot be contained in something that we we do on Sundays or something that we do when we gather with God's people but it impacts the people of God everywhere uh, at all times there is no such thing for the people of God as a divide between the sacred and the secular however much we've all been influenced by that kind of thinking and that there is a divide there isn't every dimension of life comes under the call of God to be his set apart people to be holy, and we are to grow into that which God has made us by virtue of his presence. This whole series about the presence of God and the holy presence of God makes his people holy. We are to continue to be that which he has made us and to grow more deeply into that which, which he has made us, which is a holy nation, a people set apart. There's no way, I realize you probably are glad for this after what I just did, there's no way we're going to cover all the material in this chapter. Um, So we have to be a bit selective. And my focus this morning for our time is, as we think about how we're to be holy in life together, is to start first with that well-known, most quoted verse, verse 18, and talk about the foundational reality of love, particularly when we think about life together. Second, we'll consider a specific case of that love in the command and call to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And then third and finally, we'll look at the general principle of holiness as the people of God, of what moves and shapes us into a holy people. So first, the foundation of love. Every area of Leviticus 19 that deals with life together, and that's much, it's not all of this chapter, but much of it does deal with interactions in life, in community, and society— Every area that touches this is, is actually impacted by this command to love in Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus quotes this command as we read earlier in Mark chapter 12 when he summarizes the will of God or the law. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, when he's writing about how to live into this new gospel Christian life that we've been given, he writes, "O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. And then he quotes Leviticus 19:18: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the will of God, you could say, for his people. So, what what can we learn about love from this particular passage in Leviticus 19? The specific command, look with me at this text, uh, reads this You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord let's recognize the assumed context or the actual context of this command is actually a situation in which your brother and the word here for brother can be wider than just brother it can mean relative or even more broadly fellow Israelites but your brother has wronged you has wounded you so let's remember that this greatest commandment given outside of love the Lord your God this this part of the great commandment is given in the context of a broken and sinful world one i guess, a world that all of us here can identify with and instinctively understand we have all wounded others and we have all been wounded by others this is not about love that is it's not just about a festival of affirmation of some kind of happy feeling but this command to love is given in the context of difficulty and trial. And it's a call upon the people of God to overcome what is natural for something that is divine or godlike, I should say. The call of these verses in this kind of broken context is not to act in hatred toward the wrongdoer, but to act in love. And the emphasis here in these two verses is upon actions that flow out of a disposition, hate or love, toward this person that has wronged us. As I said, the natural and expected disposition when you've been wronged by someone is what this passage is calling, in a very strong word in our culture, hate. You shall not, verse 17, hate your brother in your heart. This hateful disposition this disposition of antagonism uh, of an enemy toward your that your brother is an enemy would then lead to actions that would wound or harm or commit wrongdoing or disadvantage your neighbor and this is the meaning in verse 17 of not incurring sin because of him lest you incur sin because of him as the verse ends there If, having been wronged, you harbor a hateful disposition toward the one who has wronged you, toward your brother or your neighbor, then you will eventually, the text is implying, act out of that disposition toward your brother with actions or words that tear that person down. And then, as a result of that sin, you will then personally become subject to judgment and punishment for your own sin. And the text is encouraging us not to go down this very natural path, Of responding in kind to the wound that has been done to us instead when you're wronged what does verse 17 say for us to do you shall reason frankly with your neighbor that word reason frankly could be translated also as reprove your neighbor what does this mean it means that we are to bring the wrong that our neighbor has done to us to the light to our neighbor to reason frankly about the wrong that has been done not with the desire to exact revenge but actually with a heart and a disposition of goodwill with a desire to offer forgiveness when that brother would repent or sister would repent of that sin or wrong and so then restoring peace in that relationship and bringing about reconciliation where the wrong that was done caused division and violence and hard feelings the text calls us to reproof and not to revenge. It's similar, actually, and Jesus reaffirms these very principles in his own teaching, but in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, he says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him he said pay attention to yourselves it's kind of what Leviticus 19 is asking us to do look into your heart and recognize is there hatred there toward the one who has wronged me or is there a disposition of love instead of hating go with an open heart and share the wrong done and be willing to reconcile give to your neighbor the chance that you would ask your neighbor to give to you if you were to commit the wrong against him or her Come to that person with that same disposition that you would like another to come to you with. Well, what if your brother or neighbor does not repent? Verse 18 actually suggests that acting out of harm, or acting to harm, out of a hateful disposition, regardless of the response of your neighbor, is never permissible for the people of God. No vengeance, no grudge, that's what verse 18 says. Instead... You can't have these things in your heart the text says instead what does it say but you shall love your neighbor as yourself you shall have a loving disposition toward your neighbor even your neighbor who has wronged you it's a high calling it gets it puts some teeth doesn't it on this general command to love in a culture that's often very confused about what love means this disposition seeking the good of the other that overflows into actions that pursue the good of your neighbor at whatever cost to oneself it may require and this command to love in verse 18 is the foundation of all of the laws in Leviticus 19 that do deal with life together with our dealings together as people the neighbor can and does include the poor the deaf the blind which are specifically mentioned in verse 14 the day laborer the wealthy the brother or the sister the stranger the sojourner or who we would now call the refugee and in Luke chapter 10 you'll remember that Jesus expands this notion of neighbor in response to the teacher of the law to include anyone who is in need even more he goes further in Matthew chapter 7 or sorry Matthew chapter 5 when he actually commands us as his people to love our enemies love your enemies he says which of course the one who has wronged us in the context of Leviticus 19 could be at least in some moderate way defined as an enemy I want to ask you at this point who gives us the greatest example of enemy love it is the one who gave us the commandment to love our enemies Christ died for us even while we were still sinners. And if while we were, we were enemies of God, God reconciled to us, him to, uh, us to him through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's Romans 5, verses 8 and 10 the very love of the god who is love is paradigmatically defined in an act at the cross which is an act for his enemies for those who have rejected him and wronged him and not given him the honor that he is due and yet god shows us this amazing picture of love in the cross of jesus christ a picture to which we are called long ago as the people of god in leviticus 19 and reaffirmed in that calling In the ministry of jesus before he shows us what he means in his own life and example augustine the great theologian from north africa said love your enemies in such a way that you wish them to be a brother love your enemies in such a way that they are brought into your fellowship that's what we could get out of leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18. And this God-like love is the foundation and fulfillment of the law, as we saw in Romans 13. It informs our honesty, our generosity, our respect, our justice in the courts, and more. To be holy is to love, and to love as God loves. In the words of the Old Testament scholar Alan Ross, one can thus say that the way to become holy is to keep the commandments, but the way to keep the commandments is by loving God and loving people. All of this, of course, For us as new covenant believers is made possible by the death of christ on our behalf which liberates us from the power of sin and by the gift of god and the holy spirit who comes and indwells us and empowers us to now walk this road of transformation from infancy to being a toddler to being a child to being a tween to a teenager to an adult to grow into maturity as we grow in this path of christlikeness of holiness as the people of god so romans 8 can say that the righteous requirement of the law that is god's heart for his people might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but who walk according to the spirit we walk in this way of love so this is the foundation let's now secondly look at a specific case of this neighborly enemy-like love in the laws that address caring for the poor and the vulnerable Because this care actually reflects the heart of the loving God that we serve and worship. And we see this manifest in several places in Leviticus 19. Consider first the laws on gleaning in verses 9 and 10. We get four uh, exhortations followed by a fifth um, commandment. So verse 9, When you reap the harvest of your land, first, first word, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Second, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Third, in verse 10, You shall not strip your vineyard bare and forth neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard and here's the exhortation then you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner i am the lord your god let's think about what this says for just a moment it says to to the business owners out there that this business that you own is not yours but it is the lord's and holiness means using your field or your factory or your insurance business or your investment firm not to squeeze every last profit out of it for yourself and your own gain but to use it as the lord would have you to use it the one who actually owns all of this and gave you the gifts in which which enabled you to do this and to remember the poor and the needy that in god's economy they are to share in some way in the benefits of your production in this case, in the gleaning laws, which we see illustrated wonderfully in the book of Ruth, the poor are allowed to come and glean on your field. They can pick up the leftovers, which the landowners are, committed, are commanded to ensure are available. And this guarantees both that the poor in that society would be fed and that their dignity would be maintained as they are invited to go and work for their wages, if you will to go and pick up the gleanings in the field for themselves. Let's consider another example of this care for the poor and the vulnerable in Leviticus 19. Justice in the law courts. You might find that this seems to point in the other direction, but look at verse 15. You shall not do injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. It does, in fact, say that you are not to give preferential treatment to the poor when it comes to administering justice in the courts. All are to be receiving justice evenly, and that is true. At the same time, let's, be, let's acknowledge the reality as other New Old Testament laws, such as in Deuteronomy 16 in particular, acknowledge that it is much easier for the rich to pervert justice in the courts than for the poor, specifically through the instrument of bribery. Bribery is prohibited for the people of God in Deuteronomy 16 because it would advantage the rich, enabling them to pervert the ways of justice in a way that the poor could never access or be able to do. And we think maybe this is, you know, just kind of something for the ancient world. I was speaking with one of the visitors to our global missions conferences. He was um, seeking to help refugees acclimate to this country and one of them came to him and said you know is 200 dollars enough and he said well what do you mean and he said well i mean is 200 dollars enough to carry around when i'm driving so that if i get pulled over by a policeman i can just hand that to him and go on my way and he's like no 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 that's not the way it works in our society but in the country from which he came that was exactly the way it worked and that privileges the wealthy so the poor are protected when justice in the courts is upheld and protected Nicholas Walterstorff, the, the Christian philosopher, writes that the lower classes are, quote, not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but usually disproportionately actual victims of injustice. Injustice is not equally distributed, he writes. And it's for this reason that scriptures often encourage the people of God to stand up for and speak up for the rights of the vulnerable, so to king lemuel in proverbs 31 from his mother open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute open your mouth judge righteously defend the rights of the poor and needy here in leviticus 19 verse 13 we read the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning the labor class would often live on the barest of margins in the ancient world so for a wealthy employer to withhold wages even for a night could literally be a matter of life or death and god speaks up for the rights of the destitute or the vulnerable or the lowly and shows a concern for their plight by giving this legislation to his people this legis- legislation by the way which is affirmed in james chapter 5 in the new covenant in the new testament We also see, and this is important in today's world, where we have such a massive refugee crisis across the globe, but we see this love for the poor and vulnerable expressed in laws around the sojourner in verses 33 and 34. Look with me at the text. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of egypt i am the lord your god sojourners like the modern day refugee would be starting from scratch in terms of language and customs and resources they would be vulnerable to exploitation as they are in our world today and the laws of god protect them among his people they are to treat them just like one of their own from israel They are not to be exploited. Their rights are not to be denied. More than that, what are are they told? This is a specific application of verse 18. Here to the stranger or the sojourner or the refugee, you shall love him as yourself. And then they were reminded, you, the people of God, were once refugees, strangers and sojourners, and God came and rescued you and provided for you. So you also are to give that kind of treatment to those in that situation. Consider just two more brief examples, verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Or consider verse 32. I'll treat these together. Uh, this is one for all of you who are more in the senior category. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Well, why do I treat these together? Because in both cases, One says to curse the deaf. The deaf could not hear your curse. The other says to put a stumbling block before the blind. The blind person could not see the stumbling block. And the final one says to honor or to stand up before those with gray hair. Often those who are old are unable to even perceive the dishonor with which they are treated by those around them. In each of these cases, we are reminded, the people of God are reminded to fear the Lord, to fear God, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who knows in situations where we are perhaps most tempted to exploit or oppress another for our own gain because we can get away with it god says i'm watching i'm I'm looking after those who may not be able to look after themselves as the people of god walk into this radical ethic of care for the poor and the vulnerable they demonstrate the character and nature Of the god that they serve and by no means though this resonates within our culture today it did not always do so in the greco-roman world in which christianity expanded the poor would serve the needs of the rich the weak would be sacrificed for the strong it was just that way that's just the way it was but the earliest christians began to exhibit this kind of character enabled by the spirit of god basil of caesarea actually began the first hospital in gathering the sick and gathering people around him to care for the sick. His older sister, Macrina, actually went around the, the town of Caesarea and picked up infants out of the gutters and the trash heaps who had been left to exposure because they were unwanted by their parents. And as the early Christians cared for the poor radically within their communities in the greco roman world, the pagan society around them that did not like what they believed took notice. And their influence began to expand like leaven in a little lump of dough and the reason today that it is vogue to care for the poor and the vulnerable is directly linked to the god of abraham isaac and jacob amplified through his son jesus and his ministry and still even though it is relatively esteemed within our culture for this to happen when the church gathers together to do this work of care for the vulnerable and the poor in a radical way in an extreme way the world around us will take notice there's a great example of this called city serve in portland oregon kevin palau of the louis palau association and many other leaders of local churches in portland for years and years have been gathering together to serve the needs of their city and the mayor took notice—a mayor who was hostile against the Christian faith— took notice and gave thanks for their work. There's a similar movement afoot here in Boston. In November, many gathered at Congregation Line of Judah in a day in November for a conference called Boston Flourish, where churches—and we were a part of that— around the city are seeking to band together to address real needs within our city— the needs of returning citizens, the needs of education, and the needs of the, what is known as the Methadone Mile, which they've affectionately renamed as the Miracle Mile on Melnia Cast to care for the needs of those who are not flourishing in the current conditions of life in Boston as the church lives into this ethic as the people of God live into this ethic the character of God is displayed and that's exactly what God calls us to as we move to our third and final point about this kind of key principle for how we walk in holiness remember this whole text in Leviticus 19 begins with verse two you shall be holy for i the lord your god am holy our holiness is embodied as we imitate the holy god who has rescued and and redeemed us and this holiness the principle here grows and is manifest as we keep his statutes look at the end of chapter 19 verse 37. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them i am the lord this is actually what sandwiches the whole three chapter section that we've been looking at in advent go back to the beginning of chapter 18 at the end of verse 3 you shall not walk in their statutes that is the cultures of canaan and egypt Rather, verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then the this, this section ends at the end of chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. This principle surrounds us. Obedience to the covenant king, to his statutes and his laws, is the means by which we display we fulfill our vocation to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests that display the nature and character of our god to the world around us it is the means by which we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth this is affirmed radically by jesus simply in his upper rim discourse in john 14 where he says if you love me you remember you will keep my commandments the way that we express love for the God who has first loved us is by a deep love for him that's reflected in saying not my will but yours be done in every dimension of our lives that's the principle at work We aren't trying to keep portions of our life from him, our worship life or our sex life or life together in society. We're not trying to keep any pockets separated from him, but rather we're gladly bringing our lives into his light and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Let it be to me, O Lord, according to your word, as Mary said to the angel. And we do this in all circumstances. Again, some of you might be here struggling and wrestling with God in your life, and really just longing for him to speak in some way. And I just wanted to share a quote, a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters about this call to obedience. This is Screwtape saying to Wormwood from the devil's perspective Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys still obeys fundamentally the people of god are called to be a people who are holy and who grow in holiness by yieldedness and surrender to the will of god in every dimension of our lives and i conclude with a few thoughts this mini-series and this message today there is no dimension as i've said Of our lives not touched by the call of god to be holy the sand gets into everything nothing is left untouched and this challenges us because we are all tempted to embrace only those dimensions of the call to holiness that resonate with us and or with our culture and to reject or to redefine those that don't consider as we close if you give a loud amen to god's laws about sexuality but don't get equally excited about his laws regarding justice life together and care for the poor then that is a problem conversely if you get excited about God's laws on justice life together and care for the poor but want to ignore God's teaching on sexuality that is a problem too we don't get to choose what we like of God's law and therefore we'll keep and what we don't like and therefore we'll discard that is not the life of holiness that's taught in Leviticus or by our Lord Jesus in his ministry or by the apostles writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit rather we are to surrender all every loyalty every allegiance every attachment is to be subjugated to the one great attachment of our lives this comes back to worship it comes back to exclusive fidelity it comes back to recognizing that God and God alone is the owner of my life and yours because he has bought us with the price of the blood of his son and welcomed us into his family This is why Jesus says in his ministry that you can't be his disciple unless you hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. It's not that Jesus is against the love of the family. He's very pro-family and love in the family, but he's saying in classic hyperbole that this love must come under the love and attachment and loyalty and fidelity to him as king and as Lord. In every dimension of our lives, be holy. For the Lord your God is holy. I want to close with this comment that I shared on the first Sunday in Advent from J.C. Ryle, a leader in the church in England in the 19th century. Satan knows well the power of true holiness and the immense injury which increased attention to it will do to his kingdom. Be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. May we strive for this holiness together. May we strive to be ready to meet Jesus, our King. And say with the psalmist, as we do so, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Let's pray. We do thank you, O God, for your gracious love, enemy love, expressed to us in your son we thank you for vanquishing our hearts for winning us over as your own and lord we acknowledge our shortcomings our sin our lack of holiness at times our mirror of the culture around us and we pray that by your grace and mercy you would empower us to heed these words of leviticus 18 19 and 20 in humility in compassion And with intentionality to grow as your people in response to your great love as a holy set-apart people who could in fact be the light of the world thank you for this privilege we pray this in jesus name amen